Welcome to the fifth quarter. Conversations beyond the X and O's with your hosts, Layson Perkins and Jeff Osterman. Join the journey as they learn from coaches, authors, military leaders, successful entrepreneurs, business people, and motivators. Jack, I want to go September 11th, 01. Where of the generation that remembers where we are? And I want to go personal, and then I'll follow up with a communication question. But where were you? And then how do you have the realization of it's go time and knowing to overcome any doubts or questions you would have mentally? Okay, ask that again. Where was I? I'm sorry. Where was I on 9-11? 9-11, where were you? And then, obviously, things are amped up at a mm-hmm. whole nother level. Do you, did you have to battle any self-doubt? No. Uh, okay, so where was I um, at the time of 9-11? So I was on my first deployment. So I was fully qualified SEAL, you know, brand new guy. Um Lieutenant JG at the time, um, recently married, um, and then deployed. And we had been on an interesting case that, uh, the listeners and everybody can look up, um, missionaries in the Philippines called the Burnhams. And, uh, they had been kidnapped for ransom. This is before it kind of became a real famous thing, meaning kidnapping for ransom, you know, pirates in Somalia, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, um, we were part of a group, uh, trying to locate them and then eventually, um, you know, rescue them. And so we had done a lot of work, uh, leading up to that in the Philippines with the Filipino equivalent seals. And we came on back to our forward base uh, in the Pacific, which is the Island of Guam, um, where we and our green beret equivalents in a different part of that theater are in charge of the whole Pacific, um, for basically hostage rescue and counterterrorism response pre 9-11. And um, I think we had just gotten back that night or the day. I mean, it's halfway around the world, so it's like plus a day. Um, so I think we were there for one day. And anyway, it's really interesting because of the time difference. Um, I was asleep and my wife back in the United States called me and said, turn on the TV, um, you know, because when you're on the base, you're in a barracks, it's pretty, you know, normal apartment life, if you will. And we trained from there. And so I turned it on and I saw the first tower smoking and I just kind of was talking to her on the phone. She'd actually been to a trip to New York city the week before. So it was just really weird timing. Um, and then I saw the second plane hit live and at that point, well, before that, excuse me, as, as the first building was smoking, my wife was on the phone. I went and woke everybody up in the platoon because we all kind of lived like a college dorm. And so everybody was in my room watching. And when the second plane hit, um, and, and it's been well written now that U.S. intelligence and guys like us kind of knew some of the inside baseball. Um, we all knew it was Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. Um, and I have some great photos for training operations prior to 9-11 where, um, I mean, he was target number one. And so it was a realization um, and it was just kind of like shock, but 
hang up the phone to the wife because I knew that um, I think I was one of three guys that had to uh, go get all the super secret information that would be coming over the uh, message traffic uh, because of the way things are compartmentalized. Um, not everybody has access, even in SEAL Team, to all the super secret stuff, if you will, uh, secret compartmentalized information, as we would say, TSSCI. Um, and so I went down and the guys started, you know, just prepping contingency gear and things like that and, and waiting to see, you know, what the response would be. And so as we got that information, um, what was real interesting was there was a lot of shock around the U S defense and intelligence architecture. I mean, you could tell from the chatter that we were caught really off guard, not having been in the United States for that time period. Um, you know, we went on to what we call a spin up, which is just be prepared to fly. Um, you know, cause aircraft can be there in six hours and pick you up and off you go. But what was interesting was guys were calling back to home base in San Diego. And, um, and again, I wasn't there, but you know, everybody in America, I mean, they, they were up on seal team and I think every installation in America armed and, and obviously, you know, we would learn about all the planes being grounded and things like that. Um, but that wasn't our focus at the time. Our focus was on what was coming next and making sure our gear was good. And, um, and what was real interesting is that the CO of, of the unit, the way we do it in SEAL Team, he's a forward um, captain, um, probably was 24 hours later, maybe even 12. Um, his brother was a New York fireman and had just gotten off duty and they were on one of the bridges carpooling four of them and they turned around and drove right to WTC and then were killed. And so the skipper went home and another skipper came out from San Diego and it, it was just so bizarre. Oh, and we had a corpsman, very senior SEAL corpsman who was in New York City from there on leave. He wasn't part of my assault team, but he was part of the like unit cadre. And he called in and he was like, I'm down at ground zero just helping. And I mean, I didn't see him for two weeks. And when he came back, I mean, he was just smoked and telling us all about it. And, and anyway, so orders did start coming down very quickly about different contingencies, um, whether or not, you know, there would be a major invasion to Afghanistan. Um, but what I can say is that um, there was absolutely no fear, no intrepid, nothing. Because in SEAL Team, and I used to have to explain this to my mom. You're like a fireman. Would you, if there was a fire and you didn't see the fireman going, you'd be worried. Well, it's no different when you're in SEAL Team and counterterrorism. Like, we want to go to the game. Like, we actually get kind of pissed off if we don't get to go to the game. Um, and so, you know, for my mother, I used to say, Mom, like, you don't ever question when you see the fireman blazing down the street or the emergency responders. So, for, you know, this is my job. This is what we do. Like, there is no, um, am I worried about it? Um, do you get butterflies as those things become reality? Sure. You get butterflies because that's performance. That's the human machine. Like if you didn't care, you wouldn't get butterflies and you know, we're not sociopaths, we're human beings, but they're performance butterflies. They're not 
fear butterflies of, I don't know what I'm doing because within what I did in the military, we absolutely know what we're doing. And frankly, our training's built so that oftentimes operations are easier than our training because all of our training generally uh, ends in failure. Right. I mean, can you imagine your basketball team? Like you're trying to build confidence. And one of the ways you do it is every evolution is to failure. <laughs> I mean, that's SEAL team. Like you do it and you, but what you learn is that you've learned a lot from the failure. So we don't do confidence ops later in the war. We would, because we're going to new areas and it's new. And so the SEALs that are there, we would go out with them so that we felt like I'm going to get the dump from these guys who have been here for six months. And, you know, we would call those confidence ops, but not in the same way. And so, um, no, it was just a, a giddy excitement to go do my part for America with my team. And, uh, and one of the things, like I said, that I can say is that there was, there was a bigger response quicker worldwide to terrorist organizations than is publicized. And, um, and it was kind of like, um, I equate it to a very famous story from world war two, uh, where Jimmy Doolittle, um, you know, took the, took the raid to Tokyo just to show them that we could do it. And so America, uh, was definitely going to Afghanistan. Um, but at the same time, it was making sure to send a message that, um, you know, we're, we're going to hunt and fight. And so very proud to be part of all of that. Um, and then other crews would end up going to Afghanistan and we would return home in December and then fall into the regular rotation cycle of which honestly would be a very long war that at that time, none of us thought it would be. As a matter of fact, uh, I would say in the 2001 and then eventually in 2003, Iraq, I don't think anybody thought in SEAL team that I talked to or myself included thought we'd be engaged much past 2005 or six. Um, li little did we know the enemy has a vote. So communication, we'll get to the boardroom next, but communication in the military is somewhat unique. And I don't know if it's changed, maybe not with your SEAL team brothers, but communication, sometimes the opinion of the group is not asked for nor warranted. It's, a direct order, but how in the military do you get that group to get past any fears or doubts they may have to accomplish that goal? Yeah, great question. So obviously in the military, uh, the chain of command, if you will, helps a lot with confusing situations or dissent or opinions. And so from the very right first days, there's an acceptance of that, right? The oath of office and everything that we all read about um, reinforced, you know, double, triple and seal selection um, that mission is first, you know, over self, over team, like literally, I mean, we view the missions. It, it, thank God didn't happen on my watch, but it is always a possibility that the mission is more important than, than the team. Than, than the lives you're sending on it. Normandy would be a good example of that in military history, right? The mission was more important than what we knew we would lose lives. Um, and so we're kind of built into that way. 
But one of the unique things that I think we do very well, and I think most of the special operations units in America and um, like the Brits, the Australians, a lot of our near peers do as well, is we take a very much bottom-up approach to our planning for an actual operation. And so as the officer in charge, certainly I'm in charge of the whole thing. Um, but the planning is so detailed and so intricate that I'm going to go back to that 1A and 1B subspecialties. And I'm going to give them kind of the leeway to plan those pieces as best they can. Now, remember, this isn't new to them. They've been trained at least for a year and a half in our cycle to do this on top of, even if it was a new guy, right? Buds, uh, SEAL qualification training, he's been getting that. And then he's going to come to me and he's going to get at least another year, year and a half. So it's not like I just give it to him. They, they know their craft. Having said that, it still might not be right or might not be something I'm comfortable doing. But the key there is that they've had buy-in and opinion and expertise that they've added to the plan. The genius of it is developing leaders in that senior enlisted, young officer, mid-level officer that are able to look at that, allowing them to constantly have buy-in, use some of it, but also say, yeah, we're not going to go with that, even though I know you spent five hours on it, right? Because we're going to tweak it and do it this way, right? And that young SEAL or even that seasoned SEAL for, for that, I mean, let's be honest, I led guys that were 10, 12, 15 years my senior, at least in time in the teams, um, you know, kind of the, uh, you know, the old bull, if you will. Uh, and, and they have a lot of experience and, you know, they'd look at you like this and there were looks where you're like, okay, maybe I should go with what he's saying. He might know something I don't, um, but you would explain to them and then you get a Roger that boss and they were going to do it and they were going to do the best of their ability because they weren't going to dissent or uh, undermine because they realize the team goal, once again, is more important than my individual um, expertise. Sorry, I got the big great Dane barking in the background. I don't know what she's fired up about. That's okay. It's I got probably, one here too. Yeah. Um, so, so that helps. Because you get that buy-in, but it really takes uh, developmental leadership and confidence to be able to explain, you know, why we're not going that way, which creates a comfortability of honest relationship between superior and junior so that you can at times, maybe in dynamic situations, have some really quick, hard conversations um, and that trust is built up. And so that's why you'll always hear me talk a lot and at least for me, I saw it coined by one of our senior leaders, which was, um, you know, ultimate trust, right? We move at the speed of trust. And so oftentimes we move so fast that things can go unsaid because we know what needs to be done and we're reading and reacting off of each other and going back to that basketball example, right? Like that's what you want a team, read, react, intuitive playing and, and doing that. And so we develop that. So there's that formal planning process. And then in the end of the day, when it does get, uh, you know, f there's friction. When there's friction, because there always is at times, uh, we have a real simple way where what we do 
is the top leaders will close the door. We'll go have a private meeting, right? And everybody knows, you know, when we've gotten to a team-wide friction point that, hey, leaders are going in. The leaders are your most experienced and rank heavy guys. And when they come out of there and say what we're doing, no questions asked. And that doesn't have to happen a lot, but it does have to happen, right? Because sometimes uh, you can do that. And I can't say enough about the senior enlisted across the entire United States Navy and the military. Uh, they truly are the backbone. And, and I wouldn't have been a successful leader either. And I think most of us wouldn't be without them. Um, but they have a unique ability to be technical and tactical experts, operational experts, provide their advice, do it in a way that you understand if there's difference in opinions when you have rank, but not undermine, right? Not undermine the group. And they also have a unique way to communicate if they feel really, really strongly based on their experience about something that, again, is not throwing the leader under the bus. And that is something, again, that isn't they're not born with that. That comes with time and experience in their rank and understanding the big picture. And, uh, and they're just masters at it, you know, and Hey, let's be honest. Uh, one of my favorite chiefs, um, I remember being on the ground somewhere and I want to do something and, and he just, you know, he did this, uh, there was no smile. And he was just like, really? Like, really? And I was like, yeah, Roger that. I think we're going to the South, you know, and, and that's fine. Like I have to be a comfortable leader to accept that. I don't always know everything. And, uh, and one of the things I think that we all believe in is that it's not about right or wrong decisions. There's times where that's required, but it's about everybody doing the decision together. So if we all turn right together, we're going to work through what happens next? And then if we need to turn left, as long as we do that together, right, things work out in the end. And that's that's kind of a truism in, in small unit tactics, right, is you're not always going to make the best decisions. But if we all do it together, we have a better chance of mission accomplishment and survival. No, I love that example. I, uh, Jack, I want to go to Performance Mountain. And I know the goal is to help people, teams and companies, culture, mindset become elite. Is there a bigger key than communication between people? No. Nope. Everything that we teach and everything that SEAL Team has taught me, and I have uh, two former NFL guys, uh, Danny Woodhead, Matt Slauson, in their locker rooms, uh, you know, both played 10 years or so. Uh, Dr. Larry Widman, who's been a sports psychiatrist for 25 years. Uh, really brings kind of the science to it, um, you know, looking up all the journals and, 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 and I always smile with him because, you know, that profession at times can be something that high performers, SEALs, athletes look at and kind of go, eh, I don't know. Um, but I really love him because nobody understands how much we use that in SEAL team to gain an edge in our mental performance. And also when we get sideways. Um, and so what he does for us is he takes our practical experience as, you know, SEAL NFL performance, Lauren Cook, who's a John Cook's daughter, very all-American volleyball player. She's also part of the team. Um, 
And so we have a bunch of practical end users. And then we have Doc, who has been an advisor, but he also digs into the science of what's going on from studies. And it's interesting stuff. And so when you break it down and you get into the, you know, the group of talking about ideas of our experiences, but then also actively working with teams. And that's why we like working with teams, because we continue to learn ourselves, right? What we did and how we did it are nice examples, but each team is a little different because they're just different people. And so we're constantly trying to refine our craft. But in the end, whether it's two people, whether it's 10, 20, 30, you can overcome the fact that it's a group of people. And how do people get things done, they have to communicate. And there's a lot of ways to communicate. We're communicating mostly by voice, but there's some visual here, right? There's visual cues we're seeing. This isn't as good as face-to-face, but it's pretty good, right? But then there's the intuitive. There's body language. There's tone of voice. There's learning, like I said before, how do you say positive things? How do you give constructive criticism? You know, the old adage, and it's true. Some people need a pat on the back. Some people need a kick in the ass, right? But that takes time and experience as you grow, as you develop inside of groups of people to understand how to pull those levers. And so we're always trying to provide coaches, players, businesses, more tools in the leadership toolbox, as well as the teammate toolbox to effectively communicate. And oftentimes it's the same type of stuff that's been plaguing man for a long time. Ego, right? Uh, Perception of self, maybe people around me and what they tell me I am opposed to what I am for this team right now. And we find if we can get the communication more clear, more precise, not as divisive, right? And more of what I like to call we're nurturing. So I've planted the seed and now I'm pouring water and everybody's pouring water and, and we're putting fertilizer on it and we're growing. And then all of a sudden, you know, that one drops the seed and we've got more opposed to Hey man, I've got the best plant. Now I'm just going to cut it. Right. Like, Oh, here's my, here's my cool plant. Eh, that, I mean, come on, whether it's college athletics or in, and in pros, I understand what the contracts, it, it can get a little wacky up in the pro level, but in the end of the day, the greatest teams, right. They generally stay together. You change some personalities here and there, but in college athletics, you know, even in basketball where guys are doing one and done predominantly most college athletics, kids are there three, four years. That's a long time to develop people. And so, um, if you start early on everybody and you get the communication clear and you start to lessen friction points, but you have the ability when they come up to do conflict resolution, because that's probably the number one thing that destroys teams is conflict resolution and nobody knows how to do it or they, they don't do it well. Um, and, but how do you do it? You do conflict resolution by communicating. So We focus a lot of time on communication at the individual level and at the group level. And not everybody's equal. Some guys don't have to say a lot, but when they do talk, right, we need to understand, you know, what the message is and why it's important. 
and some of the best leaders, right? They don't need to say much, but when they do, it's really important. And then, you know, the guys that are maybe squawking a little too much, <laughs> we've got to tamp that down a little bit and make that a little more appropriate. And oftentimes I see with young people and older people, and I certainly had this problem in SEAL team as time went on. And I think it's just natural is we get good at our successes, right? And what worked for me growing up in 2001 and three and five, you know, didn't always work in seven, 11, 15. So I have to not close myself off to continuing to learn skills so that I can reach younger and younger people, you know, cause that in SEAL team, you know, your average guy's probably 25 years old. Um, and that gets harder as we get older. Cause we, we, especially if we've had success, right? Because I've had success and I know this to be the truth. So we've got to keep working on reaching people and the mechanisms and the tools from which we do that. And there's really, honestly, that's why I love sports. There's no better place to do it without getting shot at than sports because it's dynamic you have practice sessions all the time. It's just, what do you want to practice? And a lot of times it makes sense, right? We, we think it's X's and O's problems. And the reality is it's usually personalities and communication problem. And so if we spend a little bit of time on that, as well as mental skills and things like that, but what, what it comes down to really is we really help teams and groups communicate better. Jack, I'd like for you to talk about 108010. I've heard this referred as the mountain of average. You got your top 10% performers, your 80%, and then your bottom 10. What are your thoughts and suggestions for coaches as they work with each each of those three groups? Yeah, that's great. I actually um, do a whole slide on this. Um, maybe you guys have seen some of our stuff. I don't know. Um, but it's a it's a rule that's out there, and I think a lot of us in leadership and leading people um, – all have heard that. And from my experience, there's a little bit different. And I don't think many people talk about it correctly, at least how I observed it in SEAL team. And so I will say up front, yes, it's generally a true moniker, no matter what you, uh, what you screen or select uh, when groups of people form up, um, you know, you are going to have your average, um, you know, of, you know, 80, if you want to say, then you're gonna have 10% really high performers, and then you're gonna have 10% bottom feeders. Okay. Um, and that average can go this, that, and another thing. But in the end of the day, that's a pretty true deal when people form up into groups. The difference in the military that I see in our leadership structure and that mission first approach is that we truly believe that people are our most important asset. Okay. So I don't take for granted going all the way back to buds, right? Really? We would like as Navy SEALs for every one of those kids to graduate and join the force. We would love that. Right. But again, we have standards. So if you can't meet the standards, you can't meet the standards. Um, no apologies for that. But we look at that attempt to come and then to join the unit. And we realize that all the gear, all the cool toys, they're nothing without the human being, right? And so we spend a lot of time in the development of the human being and we don't give up on them, even though we all tend to gravitate into that same dynamic that's out there. What we do different 
is that, and I've seen this now a lot because I probably, well, I know for a fact I started quote unquote consulting while I was still on active duty um, for sports teams. And so I was starting to see this stuff in 2010 um, and, you know, been doing it full time since 18. And I've had a lot of great access to great programs and, and people and, and, and all of that. But what happens is, is, and it drives me nuts in the civilian sector and sports. We tend to reward the top 10% because they're in the top 10%, meaning they've shown they're, you know, they're better salesmen than their peers. We, again, in basketball, you've shown you score more points than your peers. Um, you know, you get better grades than your peers, whatever. And, and we put them in that category. The difference in the military is that we don't care about that. Yes, we have grades every six months and it's going to clearly show that. But what we do is we promote you because if you're a high performer, we need you to reach back down to the 20%, maybe the 10% and move, let me get on the camera, move our needle, right? So what, if you're in my crew and you're in the 10%, Great. Good job. I need you. Keep killing it. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to move my group to 85, 5, and 10, right? And so you no longer are going to be given the fanfare of all those individual things that got you into the 10%. You're going to go back down and make my team and my group stronger by sharing what you know and teaching what you know, because that in and of itself is a leadership task. And if you in SEAL team can get one moved from the bottom 10 up into the average, right? Now I know I can give you two and then I can give you three and here we go. And now I no longer have to worry about you being in the 10% and that you might just be a selfish person that just worries about I'm in the 10%, you know, I'm, I'm making my money yada, 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 which is a weird dynamic in the civilian world because we do reward some of that individual stuff. But again, in the ultimate team, right, that's where we differ a lot. And so now we grade on that dynamic opposed to the individual performance dynamic. Why? Because as a strategic leader, I know my team's getting stronger. There will always be a point in time and we always used, or I always used, I get a little bit of freedom in the Navy. There are things that can happen in the Navy that are, of course, immediately fireable. You know, um, there just is, and there has to be, you know, drug offenses, the typical crimes we see out there, uh, anything. I mean, just a heinous ethical, moral decision can just be enough, right? But generally speaking, I always use three strikes and you're out. So everybody's going to make mistakes, myself included. I'm going to make mistakes in training. I'm going to make mistakes on, you know, how I judge my guys um, and rate them sometimes. But from each mistake, I can be trained. I can learn. And so the difference that we do is one mistake, you're called on it, you know, training. If you need the training, maybe it was just a mistake one time. Great. Make that second mistake again 
after you've been trained, we're going to put some mentors on you that we know, know how to do things right and can help you, right? This is where it gets interesting because if you have such an ego that you want to push back on somebody trying to help you and they've given you the experts that you and everybody around you knows can help you and you're pushing back, you're getting really close to that third strike. Um, and if you get to that third strike, you know, I just have to say, you know, I'm sorry, you're not up to the standard. We've done everything we can, you know, I'll help you transfer. And you see a lot of that. Um, you see a lot where people make mistakes and I don't know if, if they feel even that they want to be on a team, they really want to be there and they don't want to accept the coaching or the critiques. Um, and at that point in a team setting, you've just kind of lost the eye of the tiger, so to speak. Um, so we would use that, but ultimately, like I said, what we're doing with our top 10% is we're forcing them to go back down and move the entire mass to the right. And ideally what you'd want to have, right. Is you'd want to have probably 15% high performers and 85% everybody's on the same page. Um, but you have to expect there's going to be, you know, there's always going to be a casualty, so to speak, of your culture, your performance. And where a lot of people make mistakes is they carry those people too long. Um, it becomes a cancer um, and they just misjudge. They just misjudge. And that's why I think, you know, in sports, uh, in some of the teams we're embedded in, I mean, we are there for assistant coach selection. We're there sometimes in recruiting meetings to identify the personalities and the makeup of how it will fit into this culture, right? So this kid might be great at Florida, but he's not great at Nebraska, right? This kid might, and, and that's such a hard thing with coaches because there's only so many measurables and there's only so much time to go out and see the character of young people. Um, but nonetheless, once they're yours, you know, go, go into development. Think of it, like I said, plant the seed, let it grow. Let it grow in hoops. Let it grow as a person. Make them a better person, a better communicator. You get a better player. I've been wanting to ask, what was the reception like after you left the team? So you retired. You've gone into you know into business now, doing this on a full time basis. Were you welcome with open arms? That you know, based on on your experience and what you've done within the SEAL community, you know, you've got a long list of people wanting you to, to come speak. Or was there pushback at any point from anybody saying, you know, we 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 don't want the you know the 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 war mentality around? Yeah, I mean, I think especially along special operators, there's a lot of different people out there with similar experiences to me. Um, I probably pay attention more to them as former teammates or maybe an upstart that has a lot of uh, fanfare. And everybody, I think, designs if they're in the helping business uh, of trying to help teams or groups get better, they design how they want to try to do that uh, differently. And so one of the common misconceptions, even still here in Nebraska, is that I do like military type boot camps. I have never once ever done anything like what I did in butts. Uh, if you hire me, I ask a lot of questions. I do one-on-one -on -one interviews. I observe, I take notes. I bounce it off other experts. 
and I come back to you with advice, full well knowing that you, the player, you, the coach are in charge. And I am just one piece of different experience than you're used to having. Uh, And so I go about it from the way you described of taking the lessons learned from SEAL team and teams and NFL guys and sports psych and melding it in a way that talks about developing leadership and communication is the cornerstone of that, right? Developing mental skills if you've never heard of them, right? And how we can rely on those and we can train those. So providing that education and then bringing in, because I have a master's degree as well in international and interagency affairs. So of course, I'm going to bring in some book work stuff from command and general staff college, my leadership training in the military. And, and I'm going to talk about different dynamics that we know from classic study are in play in, in human dynamics. You may or may not have heard of them. You may be doing them and you don't know you're doing them. And so you're trying to communicate from all these different angles to reach said person, um, so to speak. And so we're very much a, a word of mouth organization opposed to a marketing machine and, and going out. And I don't think there's a right or wrong answer um, because some of my friends are very successful in maybe some of the more military type of boot camp, two day thing, one day thing. Other people are good um, because they've written a book with a plan. You know, and they've said, hey, here are the principles and here's where they are. And what I always tell people is it's got to resonate for your group, right? So you you could bring in every other Navy SEAL to maybe one of the people I've had success with and it won't resonate. And I could go out to one of their clients and it won't resonate. And that's where it's unfortunate, but that's where the public gets it wrong with us guys is they think it's one-stop shop because we all went through buds and we have the same experience, but you have to remember all of our experiences are a little bit different too, including what we did, you know, overseas in combat and how that affects people. And so I am trying to work with people that I interview them as much as they interview me before I decide to work with them because I have a pretty good sense now if we're not a good fit and that's okay. Because I I don't want to waste your time and you don't want to waste my time. And what I know is I'm always trying to wedge in to where somebody already has a pretty good culture set, but they're just trying to get a little bit more, right? They're just, uh, you know, we're, we're at, we, we just need to make the tournament, but we haven't, or sweet 16, or we just seem to be damn good, but down the stretch, we fold. And so where can we do some things that will start to get that performance on a more steady level? And and in that way, eh, maybe even though I gave a great speech about cheat codes, maybe that's a little cheat code on my part. But the point is, is it takes two to tango and there's no point in teaching if the students aren't ready to hear it. You know, I've learned a long time that um, while I do enjoy keynote speaking to certain groups, I mean, at some point in time, you know, not everybody's learning, not everybody's hearing the messages for whatever reason. So I'm trying to find groups that are in need of that, that mix with the way we bring 
mental skills training, communication, culture, and team dynamics. And so we take a very human approach. I mean, it's just that simple. Um, if I work with your team for a year, if I don't know all the parents and the coaches, and, and I tell a coach up front, I say, hey, this only works if you give me access to every single person that could influence one of your kids, right? So if that means we've got to go to the uh, you know diversity office because we know that he works with a lot of the players. Well, I want to know that guy and I want him to know me, right? Because I don't want to be given somebody information and confusing young people on issues that are very real in the world, right? So I always say this. Yes, I'm a former Navy SEAL. Yes, I have a team of pro athletes and I have a sports site guy. We are teaching real life skills. And when those real life skills light bulb goes on in a kid, I've got you a better teammate. As a coach, if I get you to reinvest in things you already know or just be a little bit better because you're, you know, you're a competitor and this is what you want to do. Once you've reinforced, probably, like I said, things you already know, or you've adjusted, let's be honest. If it works, you love it. That, I mean, that's the end of the deal. Every competitor goes with what works. And so, um, you know, I've been lucky. I'm not the best. It's just finding the right fit. And, uh, I mean, I've had guys, you know, say that taking their team out to the desert and walking 20 miles was the greatest thing. And who am I to judge that? I mean, I'm just not your guy to do that. Well, I have to I have to ask because <laughs> this is something I've been wanting to ask you ever since Jeff told me that you were coming on. There seems to be a lot of commercialization of the SEAL experience. Yeah. There, there are a lot of guys out there who are doing these hell week type events yeah you know that the, either you bring them in for a team or you know you're a businessman you know yeah. you come spend the weekend with yeah. us and we're going to do surf torture we're going to yeah. we're gonna do all of this does it help or hurt the seal brand because of this wow it, it, well, it does both um in, in all honesty um number one i can't in my right mind think why anybody would want to pay to do that. I can't, but again, I come from a background where I did that. Number two, I do know that some people that is a really individual kind of push to that limit and get a little bit of it. And it is a very good experience for some people. Um, I will say it is the number one thing I get asked about to do. And it's crazy to me. Um, I think by this point, I, I have enough uh, bona fides, uh, better, enough of a reputation, at least in the Midwest, where, where guys know what my product is as Performance Mountain. Um, and so back to your question, you know, in capitalism, and you guys know this, right? The market drives everything. And so some of that is just guys that serve their country. God bless them, right? And and they are living the capitalistic dream. They are providing a service that the public wants. Um, and there's no doubt about it. Other guys have been able to capitalize on a story like the Bin Laden raid or whatever. And people, once again, pay a lot of money. I mean, this is some of my former teammates have life-changing, almost generational money. Um, 
so to speak, at least for middle class, um, because of a book deal, you know, before they even penned it. Other guys are truly writing or providing these um, as like I do in a more personal way with trying to pass on leadership knowledge or culture knowledge. And, and you'll, you'll see a lot of that. The, and so I think that's all fair and good in the sense of capitalistic freedom. We're all free as Americans, you know, once we're done to go do what we want in that way. And, and it is true. The brand has never been higher. The problem is, is nobody ever joined this, nor does the force itself. And they've made some mistakes in kind of creating the brand. Um, want that. Like, that's not the motivator for why you do what you do. I, you know, I always say, guys, we all, any of us that ever played sports at any level, you want rings, right? You do. You can lie to yourself. You can say this, but what you want is rings, right? I'll dumb that down to actually what we want is the t-shirt, right? In the end of the day, I work hard. I get the t-shirt. And there's a lot of good things in that. And in SEAL Team, uh, what you want to be is on the team. And once you get on the team, what you want is you want your peers to deep down inside know you're a good teammate. The Budweiser, which would be like our ring, yeah, it's there. But that doesn't get you up every day, right? The ring comes and the competitor wakes up the next day and he's thinking about the next ring. And look at Tom Brady. I mean, perfect example right now. Just, it's the journey, man. It's the journey that the competitor loves. It's the everyday mundane foundational stuff. I mean, I could go on and on and deployments of watching Kobe Bryant videos and Michael Jordan and every competitor that's out because it's always the same. They love the journey. Yes, they want the ring and they, they'll, they'll do anything to get there. But the minute they've got it, the next day, the journey starts over. Um, and so to your point, the brand part of it, I think has skewed that a little bit for future generations of SEALs and SEALs that are in there right now. I talked to a commanding officer that, you know, I was a mentor to back in the day and I asked him the same question. And he said, you know, now we're having to have uh, officer calls where we, you know, we just sit down over lunch. We do a lot of like thought experiment stuff. And he says, we're having to talk about this dynamic because it's creeping into the force. And he said, what I would have said is about all that capitalistic and brand when guys are out is that those of us that served in the unit know um, if you're kind of a selfish a-hole and that's very frowned upon very frowned upon. Is there anything we can do about it? No, but they know, and we know, and it, it, it sucks. It sucks to see that guys would take a team thing and individualize it and capitalize. And that a lot of the public would really be captured by it. Um, and then there's a lot of guys in what I call the safe area. They're just passing on lessons, and a lot of it is how they self-present, right? They're not, it's not egotistical, it's not about me, it's I'm just trying to help people learn from my experience. And that is very much championed because we realize we have a unique experience and background, and and we think, as I do, I'm, I'm, 
I always say I'm trying to change the world one person at a time. And then there's kind of a gray area. And that's what that CEO described to me. He said, yeah, you know, these days what we discuss is like no-go area, you know, altruistic green go. And, you know, there's a lot of gray or yellow. And, uh, and I think it just depends on how the individual's all present themselves. I think the vast majority are trying to do what I do, which is to create something that's helping people. Um, and there's just a big appetite for it right now. But like everything, make no mistake about it, at least for this guy, I anything that gets in our culture up high, eventually the the narrative and the things, you know, they try to tear it down. And 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 that's not negative. That's just kind of how things are. Um and so what I always tell people is um, if you engage with one of us at one of these events, you know, depending on if you're just going for the Hell Week experience, you know, try to get to know the man behind the badge or the person. Um, and that's why I focus in that area because I am aware that the brand helps me get indoors. But I would think within five minutes, I'm going to dispel the brand pretty quick and we're going to get to the human part of it. And I'm going to teach you what you brought me there to teach. And if I'm no good at it, you don't have to pay me and we move on, right? Give me some constructive criticism, but I feel blessed to have had some success. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a weird dynamic and um, we'll see how it plays out. I would like for the genie to go back in the bottle a little bit, but at the same time, I'll be honest, I struggle after 20 years of warfare is you know, when I first came in, you know, my wife used to say, that's crazy. You never say what you do. And I go, well, we're not supposed to like, I'll, if I meet another Navy guy out with her. I'd say I'm a diver. If they were a little smarter than then and ask questions, you know, I'd, I'd deflect. And we were taught that. And that's how we all started. And from, I think 1962 to probably 2002, we were like that. Um, but, you know, these days with the wife and four kids, like, what am I supposed to tell my fellow Nebraskans I see on the street? Like, I'm not going to lie to them. You know, that's uncomfortable. Um, but I can deflect if I'm uncomfortable um, in that arena. But I don't also have to overplay it. Um, and so I don't know if that answers your question, but that, that, you know, the command did some supported some movies and books even when I was in. And, you know, there was a lot of friction about that internally. And I would tell you that most of us wish they had not done that. And when they did that, it kind of created this unspoken, oh, well, each individual can do it. Um, and so for listeners, this is what I'll tell you. It, SEALs are the equivalent on a football team of the kicker. Nobody likes the kicker. Nobody kickers don't get that type of fanfare, but damn it. When you need us, we got to be there. And that's the reality. The United States military is huge. And the kids that, I mean, obviously I have seals. I love and all this, but you know, to me, my hero is, is some kid that's at boot camp right now. That's going to go crank engines on an aircraft carrier or somebody that, you know, is picking up a rifle. Jessica Lynch, what a story. I mean, terrible. She got captured by the woman joined the military to get money to be a school teacher. Like that's a hero of a guy that served and led these people, right? You know, 
I, that's just the way I look at it. And, and I think it's a, it's the right way to look at it. Am I proud to be the kicker? <laughs> I am. <laughs> right. And we're, we're damn good at it, but it's a little lopsided right now. So Jack, I have one more before we get to fun stuff. I heard a wise man say to a sales team, treat everyone like they were your clients and that he was talking about relationships. Can you maybe touch on your relationship with Coach Mack, Creighton men's basketball, and how? what advice do you give them to stop the noise, the outside noise of everybody in their ear? Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> have you ever listened to me talk? I've used that line myself a million times. I did. That's we did. Yeah, we we yeah. did our homework. You did yeah. do your homework because I'm like, I, sales guys are the easiest. It's like, guys, we're going to change this right here. All you have to do is treat your people like your clients. It is true. Like for every sales guy out there, that that's about all you have to do. <laughs> right. I, I'm going to so steal that every time I talk. Yeah. I'll forget the part about a wise man told me. I'll just be like, you know what I thought of? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, they, and, and you know, it's like the light bulb for them goes on and they're like, oh yeah. Um, so yeah, with Coach Greg McDermott, um, this will be year four. And, you know, he has had a very steady program for a very long time up there in Creighton. And in all honesty, I wasn't following them that much because um, I was down here in Nebraska land in Lincoln. You know, we're only 50 miles away, but... Um, you know, I was um, helping out different sports teams at Nebraska here and there. And so one of my friends called me, I guess it would have been four seasons ago now because they haven't started this one. And he said, hey, do you know much about, you know, Creighton and what they've got going on? And I said, no, I really don't. And he said, well, they've got a really young team and they really struggled in tight games this year with mistakes none of us have really seen. And I was like, explain more. And he said, well, I mean, they had plays drawn up and they, they threw the inbounds pass, you know, out of bounds. Like these guys were just, they lost four games, which they didn't even get to get a shot at. And, and I was like, Oh yeah, that would be frustrating. Right? Like you're in these big East games and you, you know, you just have to get a playoff and you got 16 seconds to do it and you screw up the inbounds pass. And anyway, as it was relayed to me, you know, that was frustrating for Mac as kind of maybe the let's let, let's see and shop around for somebody. And so we got introduced and, and we talked and uh, had a nice breakfast and I had not met Greg before then. And and he, of course, explained, at least from the basketball point, that that was kind of a tipping point where he was a little frustrated that his very well-coached teams had made those habitual go-back-to-seal team one-strike, two-strike, three-strike mistakes. And he also felt that he had a really talented team and that if they could grow into that player-led group, uh, he might be able to form kind of a culture within a culture that he already had going that could really maybe get their program to that next level. And he felt he had time with those young guys. And so we went down there. Um, we do what we always do, which is a very scientific, crazy driven assessment. It's called one-on-one -on -one interviews. <laughs> we sit down with our team of, of guys. Um, 
And I said to Mac, you know, everybody that touches the program and uh, coach Mac was the first coach to bring in the athletic director. And I thought that was phenomenal. Not just because Bruce Rasmussen is a great human being, as I've learned, uh, and a former coach, but he cared so deeply uh, for all Creighton athletics. If you miss his perspective on the program and his influence on the coaches and the players, at that point, you would have missed a big information piece of which to build how do we help Creighton athletics or basketball. And so anyway, after doing that, we give what we call a culture and leadership assessment. Um, and again, real scientific, the good, the bad, the ugly, just from our perspective, take it or leave it, right? You're, you're in charge, so you don't have to believe any of it, but we're going to give it to you. And so after interviewing everybody that touched the program, including the players, um, you know, we had a lot of good, we had a lot of good and characteristically, just like Max said, um, you know, we just had young players that hadn't yet spent the time getting any type of leadership, real training, or it was just kind of the assumed because I'm the best player, whether it be in high school or whatever. And so they didn't have any kind of formal development in that. And same with mental skills. Some of them had heard about it. Some of them are self-studiers. So brothers in the NBA and, you know, this, that, or another thing, or maybe mom and dad. And so, yeah, we set about uh, educating on, on the skills, trying to, again, you can't force something like mental skill development. You have to educate, you have to be there as they have questions. They learn at different paces. Some don't need it. Some usually find once they understand it, that at some point they do need it. Um, and so that takes kind of one-on-one, -on -one, uh, development slowly as the student wants to go. Um, and on the coaches, it becomes the strengths and weaknesses of which they communicate to each player, which they communicate to each other, um, under that umbrella of, you know, our goal of winning. And I think that first year, um, the tournament was definitely like the stretch goal year two. It was definitely sweet 16 and that was COVID year. And, and we did get there and, and it was hard. But we never, one of the things that we helped them develop was while you have to have that, we worked hard back, and Mac's really good at this, but to be process driven. You have to have the outcome goals a little bit. Do you know what I mean? Like we want to make it here. But we've got to focus on that daily accomplishment and that process. And so, um, and so in the end, start developing the leaders. Um, we had three picked out right away that had the potential. And then what I always like to do is pick an underclassman knowing that they're coming up. And so we spot, it's kind of an intelligence term, but we call spot and assess. Um, we spot and assess somebody that has some good um, qualities. And, uh, and so we start working on them as well. Um, and why? Because next year. And, and so we start to create the culture that I was talking about with 10, 80, 10 of the upper 10% start teaching down and we start going. And I'm, I'm specifically talking about leadership, not the basketball part, right? 
And we start to get a team that believes, grows together. Conflict resolution could be handled quicker than most. Um, not afraid to express opinions. And I will say this about Mac. Um, he, and, 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 and I'm jaded because I work with him, but he does, and a lot of coaches do, but he deeply cares about these kids. And, and they know it. And he's created a relationship where he can talk hard with them. Um, and he invests in the individual, but he gives them the freedom to learn from whatever mechanism is best, whether it be an assistant coach or maybe a kid and I hit it off and there's some uniqueness there. And so he's comfortable with some outsourcing. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, and I think, I think that comes with experience. Again, sorry about the dog. Um, oh, your dog's telling us we're going too long. Yeah, but I love my dog's like, Jack, we know you like to talk. <laughs> uh, the, uh, and so what, so it becomes a formal teach. Um, but then it just becomes, um, again, developing the leaders in the culture and tweaking it. And let's be honest with coach Mac, it's rudder corrections. There, there didn't need to be a 180. I've had some clients where we had to maybe do a 90 degree, um, immediately. And once we did that, they were not happy, but they agreed. And once they got the performance, they were sold. Um, and it can be little things. It can be little things when you can get players to open up honestly about how they're perceiving. Doesn't mean they're right or wrong. And so what we have to do, and, and I should have said this in the beginning, when we do those interviews, nothing is assigned attributable to a person. Nothing. Common themes. And so we've done a real good job of being able to get people to tell us the, com the things that are really bothering them and really good, really bad. And then not attributing it and looking at it in common themes for the group. And then once we've got that, we've got what I call a little bit of the focus problem. And then we just start working it. Um, and it's good. And then as you get into the seasons, as you guys know, I mean, things come up and, uh, and, and there's things you would never think in today's world, right? I mean, we had to deal with a, a lot of the uh, protests and the American flag type dynamics. We've had to deal with parents. And, and so um, it depends. Some parents are very engaged. Some parents are very hands off. And those are all unique dynamics that affect today's sports performance. But again, what I like about coach Mac is he's been open to outsource. I'm just one of many uh, people he relies on for um, advice or different thoughts. And he's comfortable um, asking and comfortable listening. And if he doesn't go with it, that's okay. I mean, it's his program. Um, and he'll also call when he realizes um, that there's things outside of basketball that kids need help with, right? So whether it's uh, mental health, whether just like a trainer, right? So he's, he's built a program that is what I call, he focuses on the total man or the total woman because um, their volleyball coach does the same thing. And so I think it's powerful in today's culture. Um, but make no mistake about it. Uh, there's a standard at Creighton and uh, 
I would say if there's coaches listening, one of the things I've witnessed, because a lot of people said, well, what's the difference there in this current time period that I've witnessed is that he brings kids in that know the culture before they sign. And he hits that mark 90% of the time. They might on paper, not look like this, that, or another thing, but what comes in there knows the standard of Creighton athletics and basketball knows what they're there to do. And so he cuts through about half of the problems in the way he recruits individuals, if that makes sense. It does. It's a sign really of a great leader in a bunch of the things you mentioned. And uh, we'll get to some questions and some fun, but Jack. I wore you guys out. No, we're oh, worried no, about we're just getting it. going here, in my opinion. We can keep going. Layson and I have enough cocktails. We'll be here all night. Your, your dog might not like us, but. Thank you for listening to the fifth quarter conversations beyond the X and O's with your hosts, Layson Perkins and Jeff Osterman. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave comments on social media. Social media. media. media.